One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a Moorish selection of coverage from this week. I'm Anne McElvoy, and I lead Economist Radio. On our menu, Bhutan's surprising success, experiments in automated consumption and why clowning is on the rise in Cuba. But first, Putinism was our cover line this week. Vladimir Putin's deadly dysfunctional empire poses a threat to world order and it needs containing, we argued. Every week, Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, finds new ways to scare the world. Recently, he moved nuclear-capable missiles close to Poland and Lithuania. He has threatened to shoot down any American plane that attacks the forces of Syria's despot Bashar al-Assad. And this bellicose rhetoric echoes throughout the country itself. Russian television news is full of ballistic missiles and bomb shelters. Impudent behaviour might have nuclear consequences, warns Dmitry Kisilyev, Mr Putin's propagandist-in-chief. Such talk intends to show strength abroad, yet really it masks weakness at home. Russia confronts grave problems in its economy, politics and society. Its population is ageing and is expected to shrink by 10% by 2050. An attempt to use the windfall from the commodity boom to modernise the state and its economy fell flat. All of this ostensibly makes Russia a lesser threat. Yet a weak, insecure, unpredictable country with nuclear weapons is dangerous. More so, in some ways, even than the Soviet Union was. A declining power needs containing until it is eventually overrun by its own contradictions, even as the urge to lash out remains. So what should the West do? Our cover leader laid out how to avoid future miscalculation and unwanted escalation. And our special report goes beneath the bravado to explore the true state of Russia. So do pick up a copy of the issue and read more. Leaving one declining empire thrashing around on the international stage, we flip through to our Asia section and find an amicable kingdom climbing to unexpected success. Bhutan may be reclusive, but it is thriving. The national sales pitch of Bhutan sounds oddly boastful for a shy mountain kingdom. Happiness is a place, it declares. And as the stars align for this South Asian country, it seems happiness could also be a time. This year happens to be not only the 400th anniversary of Bhutan's creation as an independent state, but also the most auspicious point in the 60-year cycle of Bhutanese astrology – The year of the fire male monkey marks the birth anniversary of the country's patron saint, Guru Rinpoche, a powerful 8th-century mystic who conquered demons and spread Buddhism across the Himalayas. And for those who prefer their good news numerically given? The Asian Development Bank expects GDP to grow by 6.4% this year. Incomes have tripled. And the country's cheerful cohabitants are splashing out on a blend of mysticism and modernity. The spotless capital, where one in five Bhutanese now lives, buzzes with new cars and new buildings that are, without exception, painstakingly adorned with mythical symbols to ward off evil. To know whether a day is auspicious, Bhutanese now consult not monks, but smartphone apps. Straight down the eightfold path to the app store then. And another once cut-off country has found a more traditional method for spreading cheer, clowning in Cuba. 
Unshackled from the chains of the past, Cuban clowns are popping up all over the island, as an article in our America section reported. Clowning is a Cuban vocation, brought by French and Spanish settlers in the 18th century and Americanized in the 20th. So they didn't just bring swords and smallpox. Like most things, clowning around was nationalised after the revolution. Fidel Castro shook up a largely hereditary profession by founding the National School of Circus in the 1970s, staffed largely by clowns trained in the Soviet Union. Yet as the Iron Curtain came tumbling down, many a smile turned into a frown. Teachers went home, circuses closed. The school stopped training clowns in 2010. Now, however, a timid economic liberalisation is shaking things up once more. Clowns, party entertainers and party service providers are among the 181 jobs that may now be done by self-employed workers. At least 200 clowns romp around Havana at such events as quinceañeros, 15th birthday celebrations for girls, weddings and feasts honouring the saints of Santeria. As Cuba's clans tumble and stumble back out into the light, we turn now to some financial analysis of economies in the shadows. Workers paid in cash, businesses without books, transactions that aren't necessarily recorded, all still contribute to the global economy. On Money Talks, our economics correspondent Callum Williams explains why these informal economies are larger in poorer countries. There's a variety of explanations. One is that the state is simply weaker, so it has less control over all aspects of life, really. I mean, some, something that you certainly get in Europe, where you know where you go from rich to poor countries, is that as you get towards poorer countries, places like Greece, this idea called tax morale is very low. So the idea is that people in Greece don't feel that there's any point in paying taxes because public services are very bad. And that's something that you find in lots of poor countries. Technological advancement is that much less in poor countries. So tracking transactions, particularly electronic transactions, is perhaps a bit more difficult. From the shadowy realms of informal economies, we have to illuminating science and our podcast, Babbage. Mice are stoic stalwarts of research and this week there are a few more of them around as scientists manage to grow healthy pups from skin cells in a mouse's tail. Jason Palmer, editor of our daily briefing app Espresso, talks about the potential implications with Ananyu Bhattacharya, our science correspondent. The interest, I guess, for us is that uh, infertile couples, gay couples, could have children and have the, the offspring be a genetic mix then of the parents without needing a surrogate or without needing a donor of an egg or a sperm and so on. So the, the drive for that is clear. But equally, these cells could be both made from the same donor. Is that right? That is right. So you would have offspring who are their own mums and dads, so to speak, in a way that a, a clone isn't because a clone is a carbon copy of itself, of its genetic material, but these would undergo the process of genetic mixing called meiosis, and so they wouldn't be an exact carbon copy of themselves. But we would be in a uniparent scenario. We would, yeah. Yes, he did say a uniparent scenario. And while that rather creepy idea settles in, here's another one. You might think you know what you want to buy, but what if a company knew you better? We head now to experiments on humans in automated consumption. An article in our business section laid out the detail. The idea is that a combination of smart gadgets and predictive data analytics could decide exactly what goods are delivered when to which household. 
The most advanced version might resemble Spotify, a music streaming service, but for stuff. One branch of current consumption experiments is exploratory. A service helps a shopper try new things, choosing products on his or her behalf. In future, firms that comb purchase histories and search data may be able to send more reliably pleasing product assortments. While the other category of automated shopping is far more functional. A service automates the purchase of an item that is bought frequently. Nine years ago, Amazon introduced a subscribe and save feature offering consumers a discount for agreeing to buy certain goods regularly, such as Pampers nappies. Oh, the joy, and now Amazon is going further. Last year, it began selling so-called dash buttons, designed to be placed around the house to order everyday products. No more running out of loo paper then, and inanimate objects look set to get even smarter. Already, some manufacturers have integrated Amazon into their devices. General Electric, for example, offers washing machines that shop for their own detergent. Hmm, I'll only be happy when they start folding everything and carrying them up the stairs. And so, with appliances listening to our every need, we finish with a taste of readers' thoughts about our coverage from the letters to our editor. Professor Miguel Bernardo from the Universidad de Chile wrote in about the Nobel Prize for Literature going to Bob Dylan, which we highlighted in our World This Week section. And he wrote... It is a timely reminder that the lyrics of popular music can be poetry too. But are writings on philosophy and history no longer considered to be also literature? He added, The Nobel laureates Octavio Paz, 1990, Elias Canetti, 1981, Jean-Paul Sartre, 1964, Albert Camus, 1957, Winston Churchill, 1953, Bertrand Russell, 1950, Henri Bergson, 1927, and Theodore Mommsen, 1902, have had no peers in over a quarter of a century. Why should only fiction count? Good point. And talking of fiction, another reader wrote in to comment on last week's cover, which equated the sayings of Donald Trump with elephant excrement. Mac Brashman from Illinois was appalled. Elephants are intelligent, sensitive, beautiful and endangered beings, and their droppings are excellent natural fertiliser. The emanations from the mouth of Mr Trump are worthless, toxic bilge, harmful to any and all. Your equation of the two was egregiously unfair. Due apologies and, of course, to the elephants. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. Do send us your feedback by email to radio at economist.com or by tweeting us at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. 